Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope it'll be enjoyable and edifying for all, but especially equipping for pastors or teachers who are preparing sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm discipleship pastor for Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. And my guest this week is Larisha Levicheva. Uh, Larisa is a professor of Bible uh, specializing in Old Testament at uh, Wesley Seminary, a colleague of mine and friend, and uh, no stranger to the show. If you're a regular listener, you've had Laura in your ears many times before, but uh, she's back today to discuss, I think, a perfect passage for her, which is Matthew chapter 5, 13 through 20. Matthew chapter 5, 13 through 20. This famous uh, passage about Jesus not abolishing, but fulfilling the law and what it means to be salt and light in the world and our righteousness succeeding that of the scribes and Pharisees. I mean, it's just perfect for uh, Old Testament scholar interpreting the New Testament with her own Jewish background in the mix and her expertise in wisdom literature. I mean, she's just a perfect fit for this week's passage. So I hope you'll enjoy it as much as, as I do. Today, if you're enjoying the show, just press the share button on your podcast player app and pass it along to others so they can find out about the show as well. And if you would like to support the show, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text and find ways that you can become one of our patron saints. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Larissa. We're looking at Matthew 5, 13 through 20. If you'd be willing to read, that'd be great. Yes, absolutely. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, put it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word, word of, of God. Lord, yeah. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks uh, for your word, for your son, Jesus, who spoke your word. It was not the first in time to speak, but spoke of the law and the prophets that came before and spoke here of his relationship uh, to those uh, to those words, to that word. And so, Lord, as we uh, reflect on these words today, we ask that you would give us the Spirit's guidance to be the salt and light that Christ invites us to be. May Larissa and I's conversation be itself a kind of salt and light for those who are listening in. 
And for all those listening in that they too may be equipped to be salt and light, to uh, live in accordance with the law and the prophets and to teach others to do so. Father, we ask that you would guide this conversation today as we trust you will. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. So, where do you want to start? What's uh, What grabs you in this text? Well, if I may, I would yeah. like to situate that, right? It comes in the middle of the um, chapter. So, Right, yeah, I'm go for it. Pretty sure you've discussed the Beatitudes Yeah, themselves. we did Beatitudes last week with Ken. Okay, Shane, perfect. So... I'm not going into Beatitudes, but just setting mm-hmm. setting it up. So we usually look at uh, the Beatitudes as a new teaching that Jesus is bringing, right? But this teaching is set within, within the wisdom tradition that is that starts in the wisdom books in the yeah. Old Testament. So Jesus is continuing within that tradition. So if we compare chapter 1 of Proverbs and chapter 5 of Matthew, it will be amazing how the setting is the same. In Matthew, we see Jesus on the mount about to address his disciples and whoever else is there, right? A very typical wisdom setting mm. with teacher and uh, students. Um, in the Proverbs, we see the father and son about to have the conversation, and then wisdom itself is addressing the listener, right, or the son. So the same thing is happening here. And then the word blessed, right, Macarius, that's translated Macarius, is the same word that's translated happy yeah. in our English translations in the Psalms and the Proverbs. Crucial in the Proverbs, right? This right. is the way of happiness, the way of blessedness, the right. good life. Right. So, but it's, yeah, it's reading. the same yeah. thing. So what Jesus is doing, he is, again, continuing that that same idea. And the wisdom teaching is based on the principle from Deuteronomy 30, where Moses addresses the people before they're about to enter into the promised land and, you know, recounting the story, but then says, I said before uh, you, as day, a life and mm. death, mm-hmm. and choose life. And then he explains what life is. Life is being obedient and following the law, and then death is being disobedient, obviously, and uh, the life of curses that will follow. Proverbs pick this up and uh, use this as a principle of retribution, right? If you obey the Lord, this is what happens. The, the long life, the prosperity, progeny, if you disobey, if you follow uh, Lady Foolishness or Lady Folly, then you will be cursed in so many different ways. But as we read through the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, we realize that the principle of retribution doesn't really work, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like with Job and Ecclesiastes. So Which then, are also wisdom literature, right? right? Yes. So the wisdom is kind of right. Is presents developed. both sides, right? Both the kind of more Deuteronomistic correct notion, yes, and the, the, a sort of prophetic challenge or right. alternative is, challenge to that. Right. Life is much more complex than just yeah. black and white. Yeah. And wisdom is found in being able to differentiate in the great areas and see mm. how you can still follow God even then. Another thing that the wisdom literature teaches us that prosperity may not necessarily be the outcome of obeying God, but eventually God will 
reward that type of life, right? Eventually, Lord will bring prosperity or happiness or blessedness in this life, right? Or in the life afterwards. Yeah, that and that larger time scale, is that a little bit more, is there a little more attention to that in that wisdom period in the sense of long-term in terms of like exile and return as well as long-term right. in terms of emerging notions of afterlife right, right. that come into the wisdom lit a lot more than some right. of the other material. And we see that in wisdom psalms as well, because these are written most likely after the exile. So putting the fulfillment of all those promises further out yeah. in the Messianic age, right? When uh, God comes back, right? In the last days. So then what we see here in uh, the Beatitudes is Jesus uh, continuing in this tradition mm -hmm. and showing that, well, poverty is never a good thing in life, right? And it's not a reward for being faithful. Poverty is a state of life and, you know, but if you accept it and remain faithful to God, that's where the blessedness comes mm -hmm. from, right? So Jesus brings a new, like a new interpretation to whatever has always been mm -hmm. in the law. So this so countercultural, but it's not totally out of the blue. It's a it's a further development along the very lines that you kind of sketched out. That movement from Deuteronomy and Proverbs over to Job and Ecclesiastes. Right. There's a little bit of a synthesis there in what Jesus is kind of saying. He's like Correct. Yeah. Yes. So he is he's seen as a wisdom teacher, right? As a sage at this point. And when we come to our verse 13, right, when he talks about salt and then light, mm -hmm. still two passes, there are always comparisons between two ways. Ah, yeah. Right? Uh, light and darkness, right? Light is always associated with God and obedience and following the covenant, right? Darkness is always associated with curses and disobedience, so, yeah, and a saltless, salt. a saltless salt is just dirt, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's kinda... yeah. But salt uh, is part of uh, sacrifices, right? Ah. God is very clear about every time a meat is to be offered, it has to be offered with salt. Right. So that's got a little priestly layer there, a little Levitical. Right. And in Leviticus, we do read that the sacrifices are called a salt covenant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... And then Moab is cursed and pronounced to be a salt land. Yeah. Right. So when nothing grows. So salt has a very, very powerful uh, meaning in the Old Testament. So I'm sure all of these images come together. Mm -hmm. So, but I wonder if salt in this passage talks about the engagement with the world, right? Salt has to penetrate to have any kind of right. effect. So, Choosing a particular lifestyle, right, life of obedience, means there has to be engagement with the law, right, with the covenant, but also with the world. It's not something that you do secretly. It's something that right. you do in community. It's important after the last set of Beatitudes that go on at length about persecution. Right. Which you might be tempted to think, uh, maybe we should run, you know. Right, <laughs> right. Saying, no, you're stay, right? Uh, I think of that pattern in... Well, it's, it's in the Lord's Prayer later in chapter 6, right? Right. Uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So it's sort of like, we'd rather not have the trial, but when we're in it, deliver right. us. Or in uh, John 17, the parallel there would be the Father asked not that you'd take them out of the world, but protect them, keep them from the evil one. I wonder if there's a little bit of a similar, not, not a direct influence, but I mean, kind of a similar 
pattern of teaching here in Jesus where it's like, no, you're salt and light in the world. Right. You're going to have persecution. The blessings are not, it's not a straight line. Don't have a simplistic reading of what Deuteronomy is trying to say. That's the basic thing, but it's more complicated than that. Right. Okay. That's very helpful. And then the same uh, was, uh, was light, right? So light is now speaking more of a distinctiveness, right? Something that sets you apart. If salt is the engagement in the world now, light is being Ah. set apart from the rest of the world. The city up on the hill or the lamp up on a stand. Yeah. So it's something like living this this kind of life, right? Being wise in the world means to be set apart, be different, but also shine bright, right? Mm -hmm. Brighter than everybody else because it is so different. It's not easy, but no, yeah. That's actually what yeah, you're think, called to do. I think the back and forth. Sorry, I, I don't know why I keep bringing up John 17. I've just been in it lately. But, you know, the back-to-back lines, I'm sanctifying them, but I'm sending them into the world, right? right. It's this both sides. Right. Set apart, distinct, shining as a light right. up on a city and a hill, and yet not, but also at the same time, salt sent right. into the world to transform it. Right. Not just to shine at it at a distance. Right. Okay. So very personal engagement yeah. with, with community. Yes, yeah, so he's still setting before two different paths, like Deuteronomy, right. but more complicated than, right. yes. <laughs> than yes. just Deuteronomy or Proverbs. Right. And that's, you know, at the end, he says, you know, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees, right? So obviously, you know, we usually look at, at as a as a bad thing, like the righteousness of Pharisees was bad. No, the righteousness of Pharisees was very high. That yeah. was a very high standard to achieve. So they were following the law, but they kind of missed that spirit of the law, right? Why you're doing it. So Jesus calling his disciples back to that, to the spirit of the law, and to be even better, right? To really be sold in light, to stand out. Because they, uh, the Pharisees know what the law requires, and they do it, but there is obviously no engagement. There is no shining light in people's life. Ah, that really so, does connect. There, maybe that hiding under a bushel is kind of the more Pharisaic way, like right. just get yeah. it right. <laughs> yeah, it's more about doing it Avoid right. Avoid defilement, yeah. Right. Than being, right. Avoiding sin more than doing good. Right, yeah. yes, yes. Well, that's yeah. good. Let's let's take a quick break right there and come back and zoom a little more in on this stuff about the law and those couple verses between there. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest Larissa Levicheva, and we're looking at Matthew five thirteen through twenty. Before the break, we got that great kind of that that sort of wisdom teacher mindset, that clear context was going to help us, I think, interpret. Now, this whole passage is important, obviously, but I'm glad we kind of got through the first part because I feel like it'd be good to zoom in on 17 through 20 a little bit more. So let me read that fresh, and then we'll kind of discuss that a little more in depth. So here goes. Think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill For truly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law 
until it is accomplished. Whoever then relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But he who does them and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah, so what's what, what's going on here? What's the... What's he responding to? I mean, and, and how does this fit? Like, why does it come here? You know, I kind of feel like there's something, and maybe you would disagree, but this almost feels like a thesis statement for the for right. the Sermon on the Mount. So, right. you know, is there something to like where it fits here, kind of after Salt and Light, after the Beatitudes? What, what's he up to here? What's, what's, the, what's the thrust of this passage and its location? So going back to those two ways of life, life mm. and death, right? That's uh, wisdom tradition is built on that comes from Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, Moses talks about fulfilling, uh, obeying the law, following the law, mm. doing what the law requires, right? That's what life is. Now, Jesus comes to this moment to continue his teachings, right? In this sapiental tradition. And, uh, and sapiential he, means wisdom in the wisdom tradition, right? right? And now he will focus on the law, right? What's what are they need to follow to be to be blessed, as they said before, right? As he said before, and as you said, it's a thesis statement to what's following, right? Not so much to what we just discussed, mm-hmm. but to what's follow, following, because he will discuss, you know, murder and adultery and all that. So he is yeah, looking these at the law. You have heard it said. We'll do that next week, but <laughs> right. but that's what he's yeah. going to. And then it's um, verses seventeen to twenty, kind of serve as a frame, and the back end of the frame comes with that like seven twelve, maybe the like seven twenty four, and then twenty eight is a bookend to the very beginning the of chapter five. Yeah, yeah narrative, but. In 24, we read, everyone who hears these words of mine and act on them yes. will be like a wise man who built his house on rock, right? And then it, he goes into this example. In the wisdom tradition, building a house does not speak of building a physical house. It's about building one's life mm. and uh, one's legacy, right? So when whenever we read about kings of old, it's all about I build my house, and then the king goes on to explain what exactly he did, and it was all the grandiose projects that mm-hmm. he did, right? Solomon did that. So what Matthew is doing, he's, uh, we always say that uh, Matthew presents Jesus as a new Moses, right? Because he's right. describing the law here, right? He's, uh, he's talking about the law. But it's more than that. It's, uh, he's also a new Solomon, Ah. Right? Because Solomon was, you know, the wise king par excellence. He asked for wisdom, was granted everything else. So wisdom teaching is so important. And then even later on in, well, at the end of this particular discourse, we see that people are astounded at his teachings because he taught them as one having authority. Mm. But later on in chapter 12, Matthew said that he's even greater than Moses. Oh, I'm sorry, that's Solomon. Yeah, right. Something so, greater than Solomon is here. Yeah. Right. So that's that whole and thing. Something greater of, than Jonah. 
in that same passage. Right. So there you kind of have law, Moses, prophets, Jonah, and the right. wisdom tradition, Solomon, right. in a way. Yeah. Right? So all of that comes together. So uh, following... That new the- Solomon thing, that's very helpful because I always find the new Moses thing to be correct, but and obviously makes sense of a lot of key things in Matthew, but then it only reveals so much, you know? Right. So to kind of say, you know, new Solomon kind of hints at another right. layer. Right. That's very, yeah. very helpful. Yeah. So then what he's talking here about not abolishing the law could be that by then the Pharisees are already starting to mm. grumble about like, what is he teaching? That's not what the law teaches. Yeah. So maybe that's what he's addressing. I yeah, think the, what the he's saying. Do not think that implies a little bit of an objection. Right. Is so, either being anticipated or has already been raised. Yeah. Right. The idea of obeying the law or following the covenant has not changed, right? It's still there. So that's what's not uh, being uh, abolished. The law comes with everything in it, right? So there is no need to separate it into ceremonial or ethical or moral or whatever. So all of it is important. And because he goes into later on into like murder and adultery and all that, he's discussing things that are part of the law that are actually much more important than just bringing the sacrifices and doing it right. Mm-hmm. Right. The intent. So everything else is staying as is. He's not bringing a new law. Right. Mm-hmm. He's not saying that whatever was before is no longer needed, but his teaching. And then as we can see in Matthew, his lifestyle shows what it means to live out the law and how you can choose life, follow it and be blessed in the end. Now, was the Iota or. Yeah, or, let's talk about that. <laughs> yeah. So in the Hebrew alphabet, there is a letter Yod that is. That looks like apostrophe, right? So a very, very tiny thing. That's what it refers to. And then it says not one letter, not one stroke of a letter. Mm-hmm. So a stroke of a letter, it's called serif. It's that little, little tiny line. It's a millimeter maybe, mm. but that distinguishes letters like resh and dalit. There's that little tiny, extra doohickey on there. Yeah. Right. And been trying to think of an English letter that will help. And oh yeah, I bet we could. Uh, well, yeah. Um, yeah. L and I would maybe. I mean, a, a lowercase L oh. looks a lot like a uppercase I. You know? Right. So, so maybe to sometimes make sometimes you'll put the little the little things on the top and the bottom. Right. So or on a seven, if you do a little line through the middle of a seven, have you ever right. seen someone do that? Yes, because it looks I like a that. one out right. of context. If you have a little hat on your one. Right. And I have a little hat on my ones. <laughs> and so I always put a line in, in the middle of my sevens. Right. So yeah. it's those little things that bring distinction. So again, wisdom literature brings examples to explain concepts, right? Examples from everyday life. So yeah. alphabet, something that people know and use and write, I see that little, if so, so minute, right? Detail is important. And how much more are the bigger things that he's going to explain? Right, the weightier matters. And I, I'm wondering, I, I mentioned earlier when we were talking about the bookend, because mm-hmm. I, I wonder, in some ways, the bookends, the Sermon on the Mount starts wrapping up after verse 12 of chapter 7, because there he kind of returns to the two ways, right, right. which way are you going to go? Right. 
he's not giving specific instruction anymore. He's kind of zooming out at that right. point. Um, no new topics are introduced in a way. And I mentioned that because verse 12 is a, also a little bit of an inclusio with this because it says, therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do so for them. For this is the law and the prophets, right? So you get that law and the prophets shout out again, just like here, I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. Perfect. And so you can see he's a wisdom teacher in both of those instances. Right. The first is very clearly, I mean, it, we quote the golden rule all the time, but usually only the first part of the golden rule, which is right. <laughs> do unto others as you would have them do unto you, period. And he's like, right. no, comma, four, that is all the law and the prophets, right? That's that notion that that's what it is to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, right? Is yes. the scribal and Pharisaic kind of righteousness attends to the letter. Jesus doesn't want to dismiss yes. the letter, right? but the spirit of that law goes much deeper and yes. is actually more demanding, not less demanding. Correct. Yes. Um, despite what they might yes. object and right. say, hey, you're loosening things by by the way you're teaching. teaching. Yeah. Right. So a yeah. lot of people will come along with a passage like this and say things like, oh, well, the Pharisees, they added their own traditions and that's what made it false. And Jesus is kind of stripping those away. Is that a, is that a helpful or accurate way of putting the contrast or is that kind of not really the point? You catch what I'm asking? Right. Yeah. I think sometimes we want to read our I'll say the problem with that is, but I don't know if maybe it works, but it might be true in some level, but we tend to want to see in the Pharisees, our own enemies in the church. And so we, we tend right. to, there's a reformational tradition to kind of right. picture Pharisees as kind of late medieval Catholics, and, right? And trying to like <laughs> legalism and these kind of right. terms that are in many ways kind of foreign to the world that Jesus is right. talking and, about. So, and I think we read Paul into Matthew, right? Yeah. Okay. Because yeah. Paul is so anti-law. We forget who Paul is writing to and what his situation is, yeah. right? And who Matthew is writing to. Matthew is addressing mostly Jewish Christians still, for whom the only thing that changed is they're still following the law and still doing everything else, but now they understand better why they're doing yeah. it, right? Who is that Messiah that's been Paul promised? Himself offering sacrifices later in the book of Acts, you know, right? he's still a good yep. good rabbinic Jew. Oh yeah. Going yeah. to synagogue first. Yeah. Right. And saying, but when Paul's and, writing to Gentiles, right. saying you don't have to become Jews first, right? And actually saying yeah. about himself in Philippians, right? According to the law, blameless, mm -hmm. which means it is possible, and he's mm -hmm. the one who actually doing it. But right, Jesus doesn't to, save us from the law because it was hard to keep. That's a kind of right. That's a kind of made up canard. At least, definitely not what Paul teaches. Right. right. Yeah. But when Paul is addressing Gentiles who've never had the law, he's telling them they don't need to become Jews first, then Christians. Their path is different. So, yeah, I, we need to need to remember the audience and where that's coming from. So, but just looking at Psalm 19, right, that starts with uh, the beauty of creation mm -hmm. and then goes into the beauty of the law. Or Psalm 119, where 176 verses are dedicated all to the beauty and love and just amazing life that comes out of the law. To love the law so much to write an acrostic poem for 176 yeah. uh, verses, never repeating yourself once. Yeah. I mean, I know nothing about poetry, but I bet that was hard. <laughs> you know? So to think that they hated the law, that it was a burden, that is not yeah. true. And especially after coming from uh, the exile, where they learned that they have to obey it, 
because that does make them righteous, that does keep them in good relationship with the Lord. No, they, they fully embraced it. Yeah. They didn't see it as a burden. Yeah, so the Pharisees would have been, again, they, you know, I think I always try to remind myself that for all of Jesus' conflict with the Pharisees, they're the group he's the most like of all the other right. groups at the yes. time, right? So yeah. they're, you know, unlike the Sadducees who are sort of temple-centric, more dominant down in Judea, more compromised with Roman power. Right, yeah, more politically minded. Yes. The Pharisees are more dominant in Galilee, where Jesus is from. They believe in resurrection. Right. They don't believe in just the law, but the law and the prophets. Right. And the traditions yeah. of the elders. Now, he has a critique about some of those traditions of the elders, but not just as such. The traditions of the elders were applying the law in right. everyday life, right? right. The Pharisees yeah. were the people's party. They were... Right. And Jesus is coming along and offering a similar word with some difference with them about, right. here's what it really looks like to live the law in your everyday right. life. Yeah. And so not because the Pharisees are representatives of the law as a burden on you. They're the ones who've been teaching you how to follow it. And I'm coming along and saying, well, close, but (laughs) let me get this. Here's Here's really, yeah. Yeah. And it seems like, you know, and he says in other places, you know, in Mark 7 and its parallels in in Matthew and Luke that, you know, you, you, you Pharisees get concerned about, you know, little matters of eating and how much you tithe your mint and, but ignore the weighty matters of the law. Right. So that idea of the issues less what they're adding to the law or the fact that they're teaching the law, but maybe more the way they prioritize it and understand its point and its focus, right. That it's about, again, Deuteronomy, it's about giving life, right. right? Doing good on the Sabbath, for instance, is a kind of piece of that, which is one of the places where he definitely is pushing the boundaries but it's totally within the spirit of that law. Right. Not- and James later on said, says the, the true religion is taking care of the poor and orphans and widows, right? Yeah. So that's the weightier matters of law. Right. So <laughs> right. that's what the law is about, right? Law has so many provisions to take care of the marginalized. And yet the Pharisees are not focused on making life possible. Yeah. For those categories, right? That's why the bad uh, beatitudes start with all those marginalized people, whom Jesus now puts in the center of the law. So whoever whoever is closer to the holy of holies is closer to God. <laughs> well, Pharisees are the closest, and rather than bringing the rest of the people with them, hmm. they make it harder for them to get there, right? Because they're poor or uh, whatever else may they may not look like. Mm-hmm. You should be going into the temple. Yeah, the poor, the meek, the hungry, the thirsty. I mean, could bring right. us back to beatitudes, right? Right. <laughs> so that's that's exactly what you know. Shifting the focus, putting the light on the marginalized, and now the law is for them, just like it is for the Pharisees, right? But it requires much more because it's righteousness, and it's um, righteousness is the same word as justice, right? Mm-hmm. In, um, so. It's the law is about justice, right? There is no righteousness without justice. So that's what Jesus is saying. Like, whatever is required is still the same. Yeah, getting the priorities right, right. though. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's really good. That's really good. One last thing, and then we'll take a break and explore some sermon starters. But in verse 19, when he says those who relax or loosen mm-hmm. uh, one of the least of these commandments— and teaches others so, 
and then and then the blessing is the reverse. Is there? It's it's dawning on me that the Sermon on the Mount is kind of focused not just on teaching how to live this now, but it's like you almost get the sense he's saying there's a little warning here to his own disciples when it comes your turn to teach. You know, beware of abolishing the law, even though you might think that's what I'm up to. I'm not. I just find yeah. it striking that he has that that double there, not just you know. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others. So, I mean, I don't want to get into the Paul thing again, but you do kind of, it's almost like, sounds like a little barb of Paul, you know, kind of like, because it's not enough just to keep the law. You need to also encourage others to do so, to exhort others to do so, to teach others to do so. And then what do you think is going on there? Well, if we think, you know, Jesus says, fulfilling the law and the prophets, right? The prophets talk about, Mm you know, princes and the leaders, right, of the uh, of the people as the shepherds, right, right, who suppose to lead the people. And then in Ezekiel 34, 35, we read about how the shepherds are evil and they will be punished much more severely than the people because they led the people astray. They yeah, the worst were thing the isn't one... breaking the law. The worst thing is right. getting others to break the law because... Right. Yes. Because of your the way you're setting up a community of injustice. Right. Because just by the pure nature of your position as a leader, right, yeah. the king, the prince, whatever, people will follow. And that's the culture where whatever the leader says, mm-hmm. the people do. So if the leader moves them away from obeying God, then how much more responsibility and uh, consequences are on the leader than on the people. Which brings us back to salt and light. Exactly. Right? That right. influence on those in your flock and the world around. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So what uh, what Jesus wants the disciples to do is to be wise, right? To be wise people. And uh, I think there is a, uh, the difference there is between unwise and wise in Greek. So it's, he doesn't want them to become teachers so much. It's not about teaching. It's about living wise. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's real good. Well, let's take a quick break and explore some sermon starters. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Larissa Levicheva, and we're looking at Matthew chapter uh, 13, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 13 through 20. Uh, This kind of really... key moment here as the the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 through 7, is getting started. So let's explore some sermon starters. I did did want to ask a specific question, if you're willing, and then we can go wherever you want from there. You mentioned earlier the predominantly Jewish audience that, of course, almost entirely Jewish audience that Jesus himself had on this mountain, (laughs) and then the predominantly Jewish audience as Matthew is, and you can just tell by what he emphasizes over against the other Gospels. So then what does that look like then? Because this is now a gospel for all Christians, both Jew and Gentile alike. But do you just have some thoughts about what that, what that looks like for how Gentile Christians in particular go about appropriating and applying a passage like this? Does that make sense? Right, right. Yeah. So I guess the... Seems challenging. Right. I guess the question we need to ask is what does it mean to engage mm-hmm. with the culture that uh, we're living in today in such a way that we're able to penetrate it and transform it from the inside. I think what Jesus is talking about is countercultural, right? Mm. It's not just about standing 
on a street corner and telling people what they need to do. It's rather going and doing good works and, you know, others will see what you're doing, right? So I think in today's culture, where there are so many gray areas and so many blurred lines, right? what does it mean to be different? What does it really mean to be a Christian when, you know, so many things are associated with being a Christian, right? So I think that's the question, right? What does it mean to truly follow God in everything, right? Live holistically and practice the true religion, as James says it, right? Paying attention to the marginalized. I think centuries of Christianity have significantly influenced our idea of what it means to be Christian and uh, live a Christian life. And I also think it really, it would be a different for different communities in different places. Yeah. Right? Wherever you are situated, you really need to know your your community and who is in your church and who you want to reach. So, yeah. And, you know, just the, the idea of not abolishing the law, but fulfilling it, right? If Like, what is this law then? Right? How do you understand that? It is the Ten Commandments, but it's so much more. Mm-hmm. So it's not just about not what you're allowed to do, but what you're actually encouraged to do. Yeah. Right? So. Yeah, boy, I feel like a whole sermon on just like, yeah. again, a very different way of talking about Pharisees that would sort of do some teaching and preaching on the trap of just avoiding sin. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. Because so much of what, I mean, even Jesus famous golden rule is in contrast with a silver rule that's found in religious literature across the world, older than Jesus, much more commonly, which is don't do to others what you wouldn't want them to do to you, which would be a good sin avoidance strategy. Right. Yes. But the positive do unto others what you'd want them to do to you, which emphasizes, you know, the widow, the orphan, and the stranger in your midst. If you were in their shoes, what would you want done to you, right? Yeah. <laughs> not just what you and not just doing. Right. And not just uh, staying in communion, so to speak, with the, uh, with the Pharisees and the scribes, right? Mm-hmm. They would only associate with those like them, Because that's right? the best way to avoid sin. Right. Because it's all about purity. And if you touch something that's unpure, you're unpure, and you know, so on. But how do you engage the world remaining pure, right? So what, what does that mean, right? It's not well, avoiding pure, sin. Pure light, pure salt. No. I mean, the imagery maybe helps, right? Right. Like what makes that pure is not... Uh, Actually, the presence of others mm-hmm. right? rather than absence of them. Yeah. Let me pitch an idea at you connected to that very theme. I'm struck by your comments on the similarity but difference of salt and light, mm-hmm. uh, those two parables, as it were. Mm-hmm. And I'm struck by, this is just a side sort of exegetical comment, that some of these lines, uh, quite a bit of the Sermon on the Mount, will show up, some in Mark and most of it somewhere in Luke, but a lot of it's strewn about all over Luke, right? And it's collected together into like a synthesis in, in Matthew. Who's first? Who's influencing what? We can just leave all that aside. Just the very fact that he puts salt and light right next to each other in Matthew's version. Whereas the salt stuff and the light stuff are, are separated in Luke, uh, as well as in, in Mark. So I find that interesting. I just wanted to bring it up only to say, I wonder if reflecting on 
what did Matthew see in these as he was kind of putting his gospel together and sort of saying, let me, let me collect these sayings of Jesus and kind of put them, the kinds of things he said, let's put them in an order that'll be helpful to remember. Right? I don't think we have to, I mean, maybe you believe this, but I don't necessarily believe that like this was just Matthew sitting there <laughs> writing down the Sermon on the Mount. It's actually not very long of a sermon <laughs> if right. you're just doing it that way. But this is a representative of his voice, of his teachings in general. And uh, I think these are things Jesus said. They were handed on, but then they're collected in different orders by different gospel writers. So with that in mind, again, you wouldn't have to get into all that in a sermon, but just like contemplating the decision to put salt and light imagery right next to each other and noticing similarities and differences. I'm wondering if even like, this was the idea I want to pitch. Like I could see a sermon that would play with both of these images and say, which of these comes naturally for you as a Christian and which is maybe the tougher one? Like, oh yeah, salt. I want to be out there in the world. I want to be at a bar, sharing my mm-hmm. faith, being with non-believers, you know, but maybe sometimes forgetting to be light, maybe hiding the light because right. it's a lot easier to put the light in the bushel when you're right. salt out in the earth. You know, it's right. like, it's just a yeah. lot easier to keep your faith a little quieter because it sometimes can create tension with others and then vice versa. Some who, boy, the thought of, you know, being a city on the hill and living a good Christian life in community in an open way so people can see it and forgetting to be salt. And back to your question of context, some churches as a whole might need to hear one or the other more, uh, but also could work individually or, or at smaller pockets. There may be some, I mean, I can think right now just in my community of faith, We've got some salty Christians and we've got some light Christians. It's hard to be both. I don't know. Is that a plausible sermon or is that a little too too silly? <laughs> no, I, I think it's good. And remembering that it's wisdom tradition, right? So there is time for everything, right? Ah, it, he doesn't say... That'd be the twist at the end, right? Right. He doesn't say you need to be salt and light at the same time, right? Ah. He says you need to be like salt. You need to be like light, right? Or salt and light. Being wise is knowing when to be salt, when to be light. Right. Well, that could be kind of the third move in the sermon. You kind of teach the one, teach the second right. one, and then say, and he, all yeah. of us need to learn how to do all these things. There's a right. time for everything. He's just bringing examples, right? Salt, light, something that if you don't identify with salt, but you will identify with light, right? So that speaks to you, that somebody else will identify with salt. So I think I think it's a good idea what you're talking about, and it's, it's okay to be a salt at some point, and then to mm-hmm. be alive, uh, remembering when when is uh, what you need to be, what's uh, wise in this yeah. situation. Yeah, oh, that's great. No, good, good, good. Yeah, so then that, that would need to be the, the crucial thing is to keep remembering this is wisdom teaching, right. wisdom teaching, which means not a new law, but a invitation right. to live right. the law right. in its fullness, according right. to its spirit. To live, right? To have life. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. Anything else you want to add? I mean, maybe, I don't know if there's anything you wanted to uh, say in terms of just warnings or suggestions or whatnot with regard to preaching on this, obviously pretty influential passage right. yeah. <laughs> with a yeah. lot of <laughs> landmines and pitfalls. <laughs> I don't know, but I think for me, remembering that it's a wisdom teaching, right? So, which means there are a lot of metaphors, there are a lot of traditions of why you use this metaphor and not the other one that that helps in interpreting them. Yeah. Right. Well, that's a big takeaway, and I'm sure our listeners are very grateful for it. I know I am. So thanks so much for taking the time to study Scripture. It's been great. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, let me say thanks to Todd and Eric for production work. Can't imagine doing the show without you. Thanks to 
uh, Tom for donating the theme music. Thanks to the supporters of the show. If you'd like to become a supporter, go to patreon.com slash fresh text. You can see ways that you can become one of our patron saints. And with that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. Bye.